in the name of Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks to be united in our confession of the Christian faith through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think the Apostle Paul says it best in Romans chapter 15. May the God of all endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love these words because they remind us that often we will say, well, we don't really need to be that united, but the Lord says that we can be united and this harmony is what we seek by the Holy Spirit through the clear and concise teachings confessed in the Book of Concord as they are in accord, as we believe, with God's holy word. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. We continue our blessed study of the Lord's Prayer in Luther's Small Catechism with the fifth and sixth petitions. This has been a lot of fun because at the same time, my two youngest children are going through confirmation and very blessed with their pastor who is teaching them this. And it is something where you get to this and the kids are asking a lot of questions because it says, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Oh my. And today we have a special treat because forgiveness is our guest's specialty. Well, it's Jesus' specialty, but he's done a lot of study on this and also the sixth, lead us not to temptation. I'm reminded of all this being so important for our time here on this earth. So we'll cover all of it. So get out your little catechism and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our text of the small and study of the small catechism, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the confession of Christ, we welcome back the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, welcome back to Concord Matters. Hey, it is great and wonderful to be here. Now, Pastor, I want to start this way because I just mentioned it in the introduction. You have done a lot of study on forgiveness. Can you can you just give us a little snippet on that to make us even more excited for today's study? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so the, 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 the whole study on, on forgiveness is with my doctor of ministry from the Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, of course. And in that study, my dissertation was about being forgiving people. So we are forgiven so that we can be forgiving. Taking the forgiveness that we receive at the altar as the community of believers, taking that forgiveness, receiving it from Christ, and then distributing to others as we go our separate ways, you know, throughout the week. We gather once a, a week on a Sunday morning, but then throughout the week, we take that into the home and we have that forgiveness between husband and wife father, mother, and children, parents and children, between children, siblings themselves, into the workspace, the workplace, and in all these areas where God has placed us to be forgiving people. Well, Pastor, I think, I think that gives me a little bit of an appetizer here for our time in the fifth and sixth petitions. So we have a lot to cover. And reminder to our listeners that this is uh, Pastor Ketchemeyer's on today, and he'll be on next week as well. And so we are finishing off the Lord's Prayer. So really consider this, that these, this study and next week's study is going to be basically one study as we go through these precious last parts of the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to confess both the fifth and sixth petitions. We'll come back to it. And you know what? Not only open up your small catechism, but also your Bible, because we're going to go to the scriptures a lot today as well. So let us confess the fifth petition. Oh, excuse me. 
We are confessing this from Luther Small Catechism with Explanation, which was printed by Concordia Publishing House in 2017. And we are on page 21. We confess the Lord's, our God's word. The fifth petition. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor do have we deserved them. But we ask that he would give them all to us by grace. For we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. We too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. And the sixth petition, and lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. Pastor Ketchemeyer, with these, the fifth and sixth petition, we have a lot to cover. So I'm just going to open it up for you, the forgiveness guy. Where do you want to begin? Well, we want to begin with the whole understanding of what prayer is. Prayer, of course, is an exercise of faith. And when we talk about faith, we're talking about being justified by faith before God, all for the sake of Christ. So before God, we stand as those who are forgiven. We are forgiven for the sake of Christ's blood. It was poured out for our transgressions, and then he was raised for our righteousness. So this is what Christ has come to do, is to forgive us. And in the Lord's Prayer, he stands as our high priest. He's the mediator. So we're talking about the ascension. He's the one who is praying with us. That's why we can actually pray the Our Father with him, because only truly by nature is God his Father. He is the only begotten Son, but of course, by grace and adoption through baptism, we are all children of God through faith. And so this whole exercise of faith here in the the Lord's Prayer is this is standing with Jesus as the high priest here on earth when we live out this life in these situations that we find ourselves in. And so when you go through the whole Lord's Prayer, we want the name of Jesus to be hallowed, the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We want God's kingdom to come, and we want God's will to be done. Now, of course, we know these things are going to be done even without our prayer. I mean, all these things we know are going to be done without our prayer, even the daily bread, even the forgiveness of our trespasses, because it was all accomplished by Jesus on the cross. But what's key here is I want us to go back to that third petition and understand that when we are petitioning the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit, we are saying that the will of God is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you'll notice that when we, we try to meditate and contemplate on what this means for us and how is God's will done in our lives, we talk about those three enemies, the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. So when we talk about God's will being done, we are going to focus our attention on earth, that we want God's will to be done in our life. But yet here on earth, we are stuck in this, this time frame of when we are conceived, when we are born, to the end of our lives. But this whole time on earth that we are given as a gift, we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And our enemies are, again, the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh, our own sinful nature. 
So all of this is happening to us in this life. So you'll notice that you shift from those, those first three petitions where we're talking about God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, and then you shift to the daily bread in the fourth petition. So here on earth, God is the one who created us. God is the one who sustains us. He's the one that continues to keep us living in our bodies here on earth, giving us our daily bread. But immediately, it's not just the understanding that God sustains us in our body, but he also sustains us in our soul. So we move from that fourth petition to the fifth petition, where the key is when we're here on earth, we need the body to be fed, but we also need the soul to be fed. And that soul is fed with the word of God. It is this continued forgiveness that God gives to us. And so when we are spiritually healthy, when we stand forgiven before God, we are then sent out to be forgiving people with others. But in this whole understanding of we ask God to forgive us, and in the same realm, we ask that we would forgive others. We'd be enabled to do this, being forgiven so that we can be forgiving. But as soon as we move into this realm of the reality of sin, that God would not deny our prayer because of our sin, because we all have sin. So even though we are baptized, we are children of God, and we have sin that clings to us, it still remains in us. We have that indwelling sin, but yet the sin shall not reign over us. We have the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And in the, the Holy Spirit is the one who is always prompting us to these new impulses, these new desires, the new thoughts, the new words, the new ways of acting. And in this life, we still have sin, but we continue to see this as an opportunity to pray to God for the forgiveness of sins. So when you move from the fifth petition into the sixth petition, notice that we're going to focus on the fact that there will be temptation in this life. So we're still here on earth, and on earth, we still need daily bread. We still need God to sustain our bodies, but on earth, there will be temptation. We need God to continue to sustain our souls. So when we talk about the temptation, we're very clear here that it's not God who's tempting us. It's always the devil who is tempting us to lose faith. That's what the devil wants. The devil wants us to fall into doubt and despair. God is always giving us the Holy Spirit through his word, through the means of grace, to give us faith where there is doubt and to give us hope where there is despair. And so the, the devil's the one who's always going to be attacking us. But notice in the sixth petition, it's not just the devil. It's the devil who's in league with the world and even our own sinful flesh, our sinful nature that are always trying to deceive us, always trying to mislead us, always trying to take us into false belief, into that despair and the great shame and vice. So this is the spiritual battle that we are in as saints. We are simultaneous sinners and saints at the same time. We are justified before God, yet sin still remains in us. But it shall not reign over us because God continues to assure us of the forgiveness of sins, giving us that forgiveness so that we can be forgiven people and then become these forgiving people towards others. So that our whole entire life is focused on the person and work of Christ who comes to take us and deliver us from the evil one, to deliver us from our own sin, to deliver us from all of this corruption and creation that came about through that fallen sin and the original sin that each one of us has. Now, Pastor, there are many uh, scripture passages specifically with the forgiveness piece, and you, you've laid the groundwork for us. What does scripture have to say that connects to the forgiveness, the epistles, and also this temptation are keeping us, lead us in, leading us not into temptation? Well, you know, one of the things that 
what I was doing with my dissertation about forgiveness, that we are properly receiving the forgiveness of Christ, and then we are giving that forgiveness to others. Is in particular, I was looking at the passages that we see in Colossians, in Ephesians, and we also see in First Peter. So, for example, when you look at Colossians, you'll notice that when you get to Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, it says that we are to bear with one another. So you're always bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So this whole foundational understanding of forgiveness in the life of the baptized, that we have been forgiven, and so therefore we are to bear with one another as Christ bears with us, and then we are to forgive one another. And you see this as a central kind of a theme verse, if you will, in that epistle to the Colossians, because here Paul is addressing the baptized in Colossae and saying, as the baptized believers, you stand right with God. Now you take that understanding of forgiveness you received as a gift, and you live that out by being forgiving to other people. And so we want to look at Colossians, and we'll look at kind of how that fits in a whole pattern that is seen in their Colossians. But then if you look at like Ephesians, you see Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, again, with kind of this foundation of forgiveness there, I would say. And this is where, where Paul is addressing the baptized in Ephesus, and he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, so that we are forgiven people to be forgiving. And that's really that whole petition, the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer is, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so that's a foundational passage there in Ephesians about this forgiveness that God gave to us, and then now we give that to others. In 1 Peter, you see it kind of laid out in this way. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, here's where Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And now understand this, this idea that it's love covering sins of somebody else. So that love that God has for us, that sacrificial love that he gives to us in the, the person and work of Christ, is now made manifest in our own lives, where we are beginning to be selfless, sacrificially giving and bearing with one another in love. And so when we talk about love covering a multitude of sins, that doesn't mean that my act of love covers my sin. That means that my love toward my neighbor is going to cover over the sin that the neighbor has done against me, that uh, you, you see that neighbor is one who is loved by God, who is forgiven by God, and so you're covering over a multitude of sins with love. I mean, so that's the proper understanding of love there, which is really, in essence, forgiveness. I mean, that's what you're doing. You're not holding that grudge against somebody. You're actually bearing with somebody. And so I think that when we, we understand rightly that we are forgiven before God and Christ is the Lamb of God who bears our sin, in a way, when we are little Christ to others and we are forgiving to them, in a way, we have to bear with the sin that they committed against us so that we don't see the sin, but we see the saint, the one that Christ died for and the one that is given the gift of his righteousness to that individual. Now, Pastor, can you do this for me? Can you look, can you reference those scripture passages again for our guests 
that you, you, you quoted first Peter chapter four, verse eight, Colossians yep. chapter three, what was that verse? So Colossians chapter three, verse 13, that we are to bear with okay. one another. And then we are to, if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven, we are to forgive. So that's Colossians Wonderful. chapter 3, verse 13. Now, here, here's a question that oh, comes and the, to the mind. Ephesians in the, oh, the Ephesians Oh, one. Ephesians. Yeah. What was that? The what Ephesians, was, Ephesians is what? Chapter 4, verse 32 in Ephesians. Forgiving, forgiving okay. one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, as we look at those passages, it is interesting to me to think about Two things is, first of all, the bearing with one another. Often, I don't, I've never really thought through that very well to connect that to forgiveness. It's always kind of like, oh, I got to bear with Brian. You know, he has these intricacies or bear with my husband or my wife or my children. It's kind of more like this, this slogging around with somebody. You really don't want to, but you are. And but connected to forgiveness kind of enlightens me. It really enlightens that whole passage to point us to the forgiven life. Do you have any thoughts on that, how we typically see bearing and how you just described and proclaimed it to us? Well, when somebody wrongs you, somebody commits a sin against you, and then you forgive that individual for that sin, you're still going to be scarred by it. I mean, so if, mm -hmm. if this makes sense, mm -hmm. that it, like Christ and the wounds that he has because of our sin, so somebody comes up and wounds you, okay, you forgive them, but you're still bearing it. You still have that scar. And so what the devil always wants you to do is look at that scar and remember, wait, how did I get that scar again? And you're like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, it was that person. That person gave me the scar. And so now the devil wants you to associate and identify that person with the sin that was committed against you. Or, or, or look at it this way in kind of a very graphic imagery, not so much a scar, which is a little bit easier if you wait and hear what I'm going to say. When you're confessing mm. your sin, basically what you're doing is you're vomiting it out. So you are just mm. throwing up the sin. You're blah, I'm confessing this sin. I mean, it's, it's disgusting. It's, it's wicked. It's evil. It's yucky, right? But when you're, you, you come to somebody who you just sinned against and you confess your sin to that person, you just vomited it all over that individual. So now that person just has vomit just dripping all over the, the shirt or the clothes that you're wearing. And now you look the person in the eye and say, I forgive you. But the problem is now you're still walking around with the vomit all over your clothing. Now, the devil, again, wants you to look down at that vomit and say, wait, why, why do, I, do I look disgusting now? Why, why, why do I smell? And the devil, again, wants you to associate and identify with sin. God is always the one who wants to separate us from our sin. The devil wants to separate us from God, but God wants to separate us from sin. He wants to mm. deliver us from the devil. So he's separating us from the devil. I mean, this is what he did in the, the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve rebel, you know, Eve is deceived. But when God comes in, he speaks to the man, he speaks to the woman, and then he speaks to the serpent. And of course, when he's speaking to the serpent, that's when he's giving the woman and the man the promise of the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head. So here's God separating Adam and Eve from the sin and from the serpent himself who brought this whole thing. He slithers in and brings in sin. But it's God who separates us from sin, and God's the one who wants to identify us with the Savior, with Jesus, as if we were without sin. So when he looks at us, he sees his only begotten Son. The Father sees us. He sees us covered in the robes of righteousness. He sees us covered with Jesus. We're clothed with Jesus. And so he sees a perfect Son. 
And so we are then adopted into the family by grace, and God does not see us as the baptized. He does not identify us with the sin, but he identifies us with our Savior. And that's how he wants us to identify ourselves, self-identification. And that's how he also wants us to identify fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. As you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, it is interesting to me how you taught this as well, because I I knew it, but I would say my, my, my self or my thoughts always go back to this. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. It's so easy for me to read that and think, okay, all right, how can I love more? And then I stop there. Don't you look into the love of, of Christ? You know, it's, it's, I'm thinking about what can I do? How can I love more so that people will, you know, kind of forget the past, you know, they'll kind of forget this. And the onus is always back on me. And so I think this is not only a good, a good passage for us to remember in the context of Jesus, but I'm thinking I should do this at weddings and really be able to bring in 1 Corinthians 13 in a good way. Love covering a multitude of sins. How could we not then also see 1 John 4? And this is love, not that I love God. We love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I mean, how could we not make all those connections? And it comes back to the forgiveness of sins. I'm just connecting a lot of dots, and I know you have them. Other dots you want to connect with that? Because it's well, so powerful. Let, let, let's run with this First Peter, the, the, yeah. the first epistle of the Apostle Peter, okay? I mean, if you continue in that same chapter, I mean, just the verse before, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I mean, so this, again, is tying this into this prayer life that we have, because now as the baptized, we are adopted sons of God. We are also priests. We are the priesthood of the baptized. So we have access to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. So what can we do that a non-believer can't do is we can pray to the true God. We have the ear of the Father all for the sake of the Son. And so here's this understanding of prayers right away here in chapter 4. But if you look at the totality of this first letter that uh, St. Peter gives to us, I mean, if you back up and kind of watch this pattern that unfolds that we see very similarly in Colossians and Ephesians. But if you back up to 1 Peter chapter 2, okay, so if you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, this is where our eyes are set on Jesus. Because again, we can have no forgiveness without Jesus. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So when you see the crucified Christ, you see the one who has been scarred by our sin. I mean, our sin was piercing into him. I mean, he's the one in his body, he bears this. Okay, so our sin is placed upon him in a very visual way. I mean, he's very bloodied and beaten and bruised. That's all our sin. So that's what we see. We see him covered with our sin. So you you have this picture here where your eyes are set on Jesus, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And then you have the understanding after it goes on and says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So again, Jesus comes to deliver us from sin. He frees us from sin. Jesus does not free us to sin. Jesus frees us from sin, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
I mean, this is, mm. this is tying us to our whole baptismal identity, that we have been buried with him in baptism. We've been united into his death. We've been crucified with him, and then we've been raised in newness of life. And so as he has risen, and he is risen for our righteousness, he now stands as our high priest, Jesus is living and Jesus is forgiving. And so he's the one who's delivering us from our own sin so that we can go out and we can proclaim his goodness and what he has done for our salvation. And so that chapter 2, verse 24 to 25, that picture, that image, the vision that we want to see goes on and says, by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we understand that we are sheep, meaning that the sheep know the voice of the good shepherd, and the good shepherd is the one who laid down his life for the sheep. But remember the shepherd, because we're going to come back to that, that shepherd imagery later on in First Peter. But that's the picture where Peter wants to set our eyes upon Jesus. If you continue on and to you know, go over a chapter to chapter 3, you see that immediately what we're talking about after our eyes are set on Jesus, if you drop down to, let's say, verse 9, what Peter then says is he says, do not repay evil for evil. Okay, So now again, mm -hmm. on earth, the way of the world is to repay evil with evil. I mean, we are filled with evil, we dwell with evil, and we, we do evil in this world all because of our sinful nature. But now this is something new where the Holy Spirit is teaching us that's not the way it ought to be. Okay, You are now children of God, and you are learning to walk in newness of life. So do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this is what you've been called to do. You were to speak blessing upon it, be a blessing to others, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Okay. Again, this is this mm. whole uh, evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Now, the mouth, of course, God gives us the gift of the mouth. That mouth is used to pray to God. So that mouth is what God gives us as the, the vehicle through which we can put the Lord's words upon our lips and upon our tongue so we can declare his praise. And we do this in prayer and thanksgiving to him, but then we also have the opportunity to put his name, his word upon our lips in prayer and thanksgiving and praise by speaking his word to others. So we pray to God, we pray in the name of God, but then we speak in the name of God. And so we're using the mouth not to curse, but the mouth to be a blessing to others. So we are to turn away from evil and to do good and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. So again, notice the prayer there. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So when Jesus gives us his prayer, the Lord's prayer, the reason why he says you can pray our Father is because now we've been adopted in this family where Jesus is the true son. And as the true son, he's the one who allows us to have access to the Father in prayer. And so prayer is something unique to the baptized priesthood, that we have this access and now we can speak with our mouth in petition to God. But then in our lives, we can speak with our mouth this forgiveness to others as we are being forgiving people. Now, if you continue into 1 Peter, notice that this is where he ties this all together with baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as the removal from the dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. So this, again, is the ascension. He's the high priest. He's the one mediator. He's with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So as the baptized, we are this priesthood who we can pray and have this access. So we have this new identity, and our identity is not to identify ourselves with our favorite sin. I mean, this is the way of the world right now. Everybody wants to know with what sin do you self-identify with? Well, mm-hmm. it's not about my self-identification with a sin. As a Christian, you're, you have a new identity. You are a new creation, and there is no condemnation. So you are in Christ, and so things are now different. And now when we, we, we continue to look at First Peter, I mean, you get to chapter 5, okay? And now in chapter 5, that's when in verse 2, you're going to have that imagery of a shepherd. Because here's Peter telling the fellow pastors, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over them but in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So that's that shepherd imagery again. Christ is the good shepherd who laid down his life, and pastors are these under-shepherds. And so with the imagery that you have where Jesus is the head and the church is the body, Jesus is the mouth that speaks to the church, then the pastor stands in the stead of Jesus to give the forgiveness of sins. And this is what we typically do in the liturgical life of the church when we, we, we have the corporate confession and the pastor comes out with the absolution, you know, by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ in his stead, you know, as a servant of the word, I forgive you, but not in my name, Brian, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's that, that imagery of, of the pastor then to be an under shepherd, but it's in that same passage in uh, chapter 5, where we close with this understanding of being humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. I mean, this is picking up down at verse 6, but you're to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. I mean, this is the idea of prayer. Again, I mean, you are, you are coming before God. You're saying, Lord, have mercy. I've sinned. You're confessing your sin. You are in a state of humiliation because you're coming before him acknowledging your sin, but yet then he exalts those who are lowly. He picks you up and he delivers you from your sin, and he, again, gives you the righteousness of Christ. And so here you have this understanding of prayer, petitioning, you're humbling before God, and then we are warned, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because the adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. And he is seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, just at the end there, notice that to, to to be the dominion forever and ever, amen. I mean, this is, this is similar to that liturgical doxology we have with the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Mm. I mean, so this is that whole doxological kind of you end with the amen, which is yes, yes, it is so. 
But notice that it's after you have suffered a little while. So that in this life on earth, we will be constantly in this spiritual fight. There's a spiritual batter, battle daily where the devil is trying to destroy our faith. The devil is always trying to separate us from God. And so individually, every day, every week, every month, every year, I mean, we're constantly fighting this battle. But this whole petition that God would deliver us from this, deliver us from this evil, that the temptations will come. It's, it's going to be the testing and the trials, the, the situations in life where you're put to the test with an opportunity to exercise your faith in, in prayer. But it, it has to happen in this life. So when God forgives us, he does not remove the temptation. He does not remove the struggling, the, the suffering, all these trials and tribulations. Instead, he continues to keep us in the situation where our eyes are set on Jesus, that it's temporary now, but we're always waiting to that eschatological end where there will be no more suffering. There will be no more temptation in our resurrected bodies. We won't even be able to sin. But right now we're stuck in the middle here where we are growing and we are learning to put to death the old Adam in us and beginning, always beginning over and over, always starting, never completing, but walking in newness of life, falling and failing and continually need have this need to be picked up by God with the forgiveness of sins. But this suffering will happen for a little while in the bigger scheme of things. <laughs> but in the midst of these trials and, and temptations, it seems like it may last forever. But these are kind of these two areas where Luther talks about in our life, this is where the conscience is going to be put to the test in the time of temptation and at the hour of death. So from the point that we are baptized and we are brought out of darkness into light, we, we have this whole, the mark is put on us. The cross is upon us, and we have been marked as enemies of the devil. And so this spiritual warfare, it just, it intensifies. And so the whole life of the believer is fighting against this, against what the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh want, which is contrary to the will of God, to the kingdom of God, to keeping God's name holy in our own lives. Now, Pastor, I think this, if, if our readers do not want to read First Peter before this, or thought that maybe they could just pass through that on the way to Revelation, I'm convinced. I, once we're done here, I'm going to read First Peter because you unpacked about a 10 million gems right there. Forgive us the sins, the, the, the deliver us from temptation, keep us from temptation, all of that in that snippet that you gave on First Peter. But right now, we need to take our break. We are studying the fifth and sixth petitions of Luther's small catechism, specifically the Lord's Prayer, and we'll be right back. Five Minutes with a Missionary opens a window into missionary life. LCMS missionaries share an unfiltered take on life abroad for the sake of the gospel, all in the time it takes to pick up your drive through order or empty the dishwasher. It's fun, it's personal, it's real, and it's always an adventure. Find this podcast on kfuo.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are citing the fifth and sixth petitions of the Lord's Prayer and Luther's small catechism with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. 
of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Now, Pastor, one line that really struck me as you were speaking, and I think it encompasses almost everything you said, is that the, the devil desires to separate us from God, but God desires to separate us from sin. Is that is that accurate from what you said? Yeah. Trying to make sure I wrote that down correctly. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And I think, Pastor, that really captures the rest of the Lord's Prayer that we have today, which is, and today and the next study, which is the fifth, sixth, seventh, and conclusion. So do you want to move us kind of forward with that premise and all that you said about First Peter as we look at the fifth and the sixth petition? I know you have some more scripture to highlight too, but I just want to make sure that we broke it down because I think that line right there encompasses everything that we're talking about today. So where do you want to go to next? Well, I, I think that what would be nice is maybe if we could go to Ephesians. Ephesians would be a, a great chapter to look at in itself, because again, that foundation of the forgiveness, because we are all very, very familiar with Ephesians chapter six. And of course, what I'm talking about is putting on the whole armor of God. And, and so when we're talking about this prayer, when, when we have the Ten Commandments, we are taught about what God's will is for our lives. And then we, we are taught about the creed. We are confessing who this God is. But then when we're talking about the Lord's Prayer, we're talking about how we are then as, as Christians to fight in the midst of this struggle between the world, the devil, and our own sinful nature. And so in Ephesians chapter 6, I mean, we, we know this passage well, but I, I just I wanted to emphasize if verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Okay. So when we pray in the petitions of five, six, and even seven, that we would have the forgiveness of our trespasses, the, that we would be forgiving toward others and their trespasses, that we would not be led into temptation, and that the Father is the one who's going to deliver us from the evil one. I mean, this is the whole spiritual battle. So the way that Paul kind of gives us the imagery in chapter 6 is that we're putting on our baptismal identity. This is the armor of God. We're being dressed with Christ. I mean, so we're, we're, we're being prepared for this spiritual battle. And it's only Jesus is the one who can gain the victory over the devil. I mean, the old evil foe now means deadly woe. But for us, the valiant one fights. I mean, this is Jesus. And he alone is the one who can defeat the devil, and he has, the only one who can destroy the devil, and he has. But in our lives, we are constantly plagued by the devil, and so what we want God to do is to defend us, to deliver us, and he puts us up with an armor. He, he gives us the defense mode, if you will. And so when you look at the armor of God, and notice that it, you talk about these different components. You have the helmet of salvation. You have the sword of the Spirit, which, of course, is the Word of God. Okay, And so you have the Word of God, that Word that's upon your lips, that Word that's on your tongue, that Word so that you can be certain and sure that this is what God's will is and that you are hearing the voice of God. You are learning from the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit who's active in that Word in your own life. And so that's the sword of the Spirit. But notice how the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is directly connected to praying. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So that when you look at this 
this armor, the armor of God that we are dressed in, notice that we are not sent out in a reconnaissance mission. I mean, we're not sent out as these rangers who just to go in and just kind of take over and grab some territory from the devil. It is this understanding that God has dressed us because the battle is coming to us. We don't take the offensive. We're not going out and trying to seek the devil out. We're the ones who are being defended from the devil. And really, the only action that we have is prayer. I mean, we've got the sword of the Spirit, but we're not even talking about using the sword, swinging the sword, if you will. But what we're talking about doing is praying. So we're praying. And that's the whole, the Lord's Prayer. Understanding that in the Lord's Prayer itself, that battle that's waged here on earth is a war of words. And that battle takes place in our own conscience, in our own heart, because this is where the Mm -hmm. devil wants to give us an evil conscience. He wants to leave us with a terrified conscience, a confused conscience. He does not want us to be right with our creator. I mean, that's what the conscience does, is it connects us as creatures with the creator. And now because of the fall into sin, as fallen creatures who are unholy by nature with the holy and perfect creator. But that, I, I want you to see that in Ephesians, I mean, we're talking about this spiritual warfare and prayer, and that's what we're doing in the Lord's Prayer itself. And now, if you go back with me and, and kind of back up into Ephesians chapter 4, and, and you see how here's where, where Paul is teaching us, as the baptized saying, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So Christ, of course, is the head, the church is the body. So it's, it's the imagery that will be used that if the head has been risen from the dead, the body will follow. If the head is now ascended into heaven as the high priest, the church on earth will follow where the head goes because we're the body. And you have that picture imagery of a husband and a wife, of course, that's given most only here in Ephesians chapter 5. But Christ is the head, the church is the body, Christ is the husband, the church is the bride. Christ is the high priest and the church of the people of God. And when you you continue in Ephesians chapter 4 with that imagery of the body, notice it's from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, even when we pray individually, so if you're individually in your home at night, you're not around any others that are in your sight, but yet you still say, Our Father. So it's this, this prayer of all of the church, the, the whole saints, is the church militant. Every time we pray it, it's Our Father who art in heaven. And we say, Forgive us our trespasses. So it's always as the body, we are together united with Christ, who of course is the head. And we, we continue our, to grow up into love. But then as soon as we talk about this love, the love that Christ has for us, this sacrificial love, then you you drop down to verse 27, and immediately we are warned about that spiritual warfare that Paul so clearly talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. So in chapter 4, verse 27, he says, give no opportunity to the devil. It's a devil who always wants to sneak his snout in. He always wants to get into the tent, but he just always kind of, he slithers in, just gets his head in, and then the whole rest of him comes with him to, to bring destruction, to bring death, to bring separation. Because this is what sin does. Sin separates us from God. The devil, of course, is the one who 
authored sin. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning, and he's the one who wants to separate us from God. And so when you have two human beings that are brought together, I mean, in essence, you're going to have twice as much sin. So if you bring three or four or five, if you bring a whole church together, you're going to even have that much more sin, and it's kind of like exponentially. And so that love is binding us together, the love of God, the love of Christ, but yet we need to be careful that we do not let any opportunity of the devil to come in and to deceive us and to separate us from one another and to separate us from God. So that's that connection between forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others who trespass against us. So that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Paul goes on and says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I mean, so that's that whole emphasis that we have there uh, of being these forgiven people of God and being forgiving to each other. And then it's in Ephesians chapter 5 where he opens up and begins by saying, therefore, I mean, the therefore is always kind of in conclusion to what was just said before, but therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So we are adopted children into the family of God. And we are beginning to be formed and uh, renewed into the image of Christ, who is the image of the—he's a visible image of the invisible God. And so when we fell into sin, of course, we lose the image of God. We lose that original righteousness. And now we are conceived and born into the image of Adam, the rebel. But in Christ, we are a new creation. And so we are beginning to act like sons. God pours out his Holy Spirit in us. He continues to pour out the Holy Spirit every time we receive these means of grace. When we receive the word of Christ, we receive that in the scripture that's read, it's spoken, it's heard. We eat that word with the body and the blood given to us under the bread and wine. And so we are always beginning to be like God in the sense that God is the one who is forgiving. <laughs> and so we are going to be forgiving. So immediately in verse 2, it goes on and says, and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So when we're talking about love, I mean, this is not eros. This is not erotic love. I mean, when the world talks about the God of love, they're talking about a different God. I mean, that, that's the God of erotic love. We, we have the God of agape love, this sacrificial, this self-giving love. And that's the kind of love that we are to, to share with one another. And that pattern of that love is seen in the death and resurrection of Christ, that Christ gave up his life for us, that while we were still enemies, while we were still in animosity with God and dead in our sin, our Savior comes to take our sin from us and then give us the gift of his righteousness. And so that whole transaction of receiving the forgiveness from God all for the sake of Christ, is now who we are to be as the people of God. And so when Paul continues to explain this in Ephesians chapter 5, he goes on and says, be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 18 in chapter 5, and you are to give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and subordinating to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so, again, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have access to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. That's uh, We've been baptized into the, the name of God, the triune name. But it's here in particular where now you, you have this understanding of we are here on earth, 
And on earth, what God is doing is he is undoing what sin brought to this earth, what sin brought into this creation in the whole corruption and bringing death itself. And so what you will see is that you will immediately, you'll address the women first, the wives, and then you address the men, because it's a, a redoing of what happened in the garden. It was Eve who was deceived, but in this restoration by the incarnation, you go back and you do a restart. So now you take that word back to Eve, you take that word back to the woman, to a women, the wives, and you assure them of, of what their place is in the new creation here. And of course, with the husband, what their place is in this, this new creation, and that new creation is always pictured in Christ. So that the husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then here's where we have the whole picture of this baptismal language, the whole imagery that we have, that Christ is the head, the church is the body, Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. And so the, the bride is to subordinate herself to the head, meaning that from the head, all of these good gifts flow to the body for the benefit of the body. So that subordinating is to putting things under order in the proper order with this whole new creation. So that what was put out of order by the devil in the fall into sin in the garden can now be re restarted. And so everything goes back to this picture of Adam and Eve. Because remember, originally Adam, when he was alone, it was not good that he was alone because without a wife, there can be no life. And so God's the one who gives him the gift of the wife from his own side, and then she is to be his helper. Now, we know how this all goes. Adam has the word, but he then he, he becomes responsible for Eve, who is deceived and is kind of adding to the word when the devil says, did God really say that? So here in this whole cleansing and this whole picture of husband and wife, and, and this, of course, is why the devil hates marriage. The devil hates marriage because for Christians, we can see the image clearly of, of this whole forgiveness of sins won by the bridegroom. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, he, he did this so he gave up his life. Why? So that for this purpose, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I mean, that's the whole picture of this, this baptismal life that we have. We, we stand as, as adopted children of God, and we are those who have been cleaned, uh, we have been cleansed, we have been washed, we have been purified, we've been sanctified with the water and the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit, uniting us to Christ, where the devil is always trying to separate us from him. You know, Pastor, one thing that's really fascinating as you've brought us piece by piece through Ephesians and 1 Peter and, and Colossians as well, is that it, it comes up in chapter 5, and, and it with this understanding of forgiveness and lead us not into temptation, and as he says in the sixth petition, we pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not be deceived or misled. That marriage is right there. I mean, it's, <laughs> it comes right through in Ephesians chapter 5, and where and this is why it's such a battle, it seems, in our churches, in our culture, marriage, because what does the devil want to do? Separate us in marriage because it is a reflection of God's love to the church. Therefore, if you separate marriage, 
you separate them from church, you separate them from faith, all of that comes together. And, and what, what is the life of a Christian? I know one person, um, said the three most important words in a marriage is not, I love you, although important, but I forgive you. Yes. This is actually President Brian Saunders from Iowa District, Iowa District East nice. said that so nice. beautifully. And that connects with all of this because, <laughs> you know, we will be tempted. We will want to withhold forgiveness. We will need forgiveness in our marriages. And that extends to our churches, our, our schools, our communities, everything. And, and all of it comes back to these two petitions and obviously into the last seventh and the conclusion as well. Pastor, we have about three minutes left in our time. There's so much that I encourage our listeners to, to, to you know, have your scriptures open and to see all the gems that we have received today. But Pastor, how do you want to pull this all back together to encourage our listeners in forgiveness and leading us not into temptation? Well, when you look at that fifth petition, again, it's the forgive us our trespasses. Mm-hmm. And it's always the plural. It's always, it's that first person plural. We are all in this together as the people of God. And so you have the church itself, which you have brothers and sisters in Christ, but that marriage at home reflects that. So it reflects what's going on with the church where you receive from Christ the forgiveness of sins. And you then in the, in the home, which is kind of like, quote unquote, a little church, if you will, this is where you continue to have husband and wife. You continue to have head and body so that you continue to give and receive this forgiveness. So when Luther says, well, what does this mean? You know, he ends on this note. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. Now, that's kind of that imagery I was giving you with the vomiting out, you know, so you have mm-hmm. husband and wife, this, the, the closest proximity. That's, that's where you're going to see sin, because it's in the vocation where God has called you, where he has instituted that this man, this woman have been brought into this new situation where now this man is to emulate Christ and to give up his life for Christ. He's the one who's going to take the lead in, in bringing forth this forgiveness. And the woman is going to be put into this situation where she is is to emulate the church as the one who receives the forgiveness, the one who is the bride who has been cleansed. But it's in that closest proximity in these vocations where sin will be made manifest the most. Because now the Lord says, that's the neighbor that I want you to love in a unique way. And when you are with two people that are sinners, you're going to have twice as much sin. And so you're going to, there's going to be friction. There's going to be friction and you're going to get to the point where you say, well, could I love a different person instead? Because this person is unloved. Or you're going to say, well, can, can I just, you know, love just a vague neighbor somewhere else? But there's always going to be this issue of sincerely forgiving and gladly doing good to the one who sinned against you. So husband and wife, you're in closest proximity and you're going to sin against each other the most. Because it's just that we live in this fallen world and things are just falling apart. And this is why marriages fall apart, because there's no forgiveness. I was on the plane the other day, well, a couple of months ago, flying back from the Wyoming District Pastors Gathering. I I was there presenting on Reading Isaiah with Luther. And uh, when Mm -hmm. I was flying back to San Antonio, I happened to sit next to a gentleman and we just started talking. And I said, oh, well, where do you you live? I'm oh, well, I live over here now. He says he lives over by Alamo Heights. I said, well, that's where the church is, you know, where where I'm pastor at. And uh, I, I, we were talking and he said, oh, he had been married and they proposed in Wyoming. <laughs> and so they were going to have one year of, of anniversary. And I said, well, I said, this December 26th, 
this will be 30 years of marriage with my wife. And he looked at me and said, well, what's the secret? And I said, forgiveness. <laughs> That's the secret. And, and what do you say? He goes, wow. And, but then, and then, of course, I said, hey, you know where the church is. Why don't you come over sometime and we could get a cup of coffee. We could talk more about this forgiveness. <laughs> I love it. Pastor, we need to get going here. <laughs> but great way to end it to remind us of the forgiveness that is freely given to us in Christ. The Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchemeyer of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, clearly confessing the truth of our Lord, who in Christ forgives and by his grace keeps us from temptation. Pastor Ketchemeyer, thank you for your faithful teaching on Concord Matters. Oh, it was wonderful to be here. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finner. Thank you for joining us and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.